Welcome to the Byline Times podcast. My name's Adrian Goldberg. The Byline Times, telling you what the papers don't say and reporting it without fear or favour. This time, women fighting back against male violence. We were hearing once again these messages from the police, from men, saying, don't go outside, don't walk home on your own. And I was like, how can we still be in the position where male violence is happening and it is women who are being targeted with advice on how they should modify their behaviour. Plus an exclusive interview with the campaigner who has waged war against one of the world's biggest porn sites. The victims are coming forward. There's multiple lawsuits now. I think there's five or six lawsuits currently uh, against the company. Three of them are class action lawsuits on behalf of minors, of children who have been raped and abused and exploited for profit on Pornhub. And as the FA publishes its long-awaited report into child sexual abuse in football, one survivor and campaigner says it doesn't go far enough. He wants mandatory reporting of any reasonable suspicion of abuse. Let's not forget there's mandatory reporting for money laundering, but there isn't for child abuse. I, I, you know, I mean, hello, none of it makes sense. It's quite illogical. As you can tell, it's uncompromising stuff this week. We will be talking about adult subjects in a grown-up way. You have been warned. Before all that, just a reminder that the Byline Times isn't backed by any media tycoon or corporate interest. We are funded by ordinary people like you. For just £36 a year, you can take out a subscription to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times. In doing so, you'll be helping to pay for this podcast, Byline TV, and our website, bylinetimes.com, where you'll find details of how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. Benita Knoll, Tracy Kidd, Nellie Mustafa, Zahida B, Josephine Kay. The Labour MP Jess Phillips marking International Women's Day with her annual reading of all the women and girls killed by men in the last year. It's a grim toll of 118 victims, including Sarah Everard, whose murder in London recently prompted a vigil on Clapham Common in defiance of Covid restrictions, which met with a violent police response. Sean Norris penned a piece for Byline Times after Sarah Everard's death that was suffused with articulate and righteous fury. I brought her together with Nazir Afzal, former Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England, whose career was marked by a determination to get justice for women abused by men, most famously in Rochdale. First, Sean, on what precisely fired her anger? It was an, a number of levels of anger, shall we say. The, the first sort of reaction that I had, sort of at the early stages when it was being reported that this young woman had disappeared, was we were hearing once again these messages from the police, from men saying, don't go outside, don't walk home on your own, take precautions, keep yourself safe. And I just thought, Do you know what? I live in Bristol. When the Joe Yates terrible murder happened, we were being told again, don't go out after dark, stay indoors, get taxis. And I was like, how can we still be in the position where male violence is happening and it is women who are being targeted with advice on how they should modify their behaviour. Then the anger kind of was exacerbated 
by hearing men again sort of defending this kind of safety message by going, oh, you know, you wouldn't leave your keys in the ignition of a car and not expect it to get stolen. And again, it's like women aren't objects. Women aren't pieces of property that can be stolen, that can be claimed on insurance. You know, we're not asking. All we're asking is to be free, to have the same rights as men, to own public space, to be present in public space without being blamed, without being harassed, without being assaulted, and in this horrific case, without being murdered. And I think there was a real sense that women had just had enough. I texted my friend, I was like, women are done. We can't listen to these same messages being played over and over again with nothing changing. And that once again, women are being told to put themselves under a curfew. We already live under an unofficial curfew. We already do all of the things that men advise us to do. And it doesn't keep us safe. So we're not going to do it anymore. And you said to me just before we started recording that this is a moment that could become a movement. Absolutely. I think in some ways the reaction of the Metropolitan Police has taken what was a moment or could have been a moment into a movement. The fact that from the very beginning they said to women, oh, don't worry, this is really rare. Yes, of course, stranger abduction is a rare situation. And most violence against women happens within the home. It happens from men that you know, either in a relationship with, work with, family members, etc. But the fact is, it is not rare for women to feel afraid on the streets. It is not rare for women to feel vulnerable on the streets. So that was a kind of tone-deaf statement to make in the first place. And then the scenes on Saturday where the police reacted with such aggression and such kind of this kind of visceral anger that seemed to be present in those themes. And I think if the police had behaved differently, perhaps we would have all had our, you know, a, a peaceful vigil. There would have been a moment of reflection. But now it's become a movement because women are saying, you know, we can't even we can't even grieve. We can't even have the space to express sorrow and anger without that being silenced. And I think women are really, really annoyed is the polite word that I will use. And Nazir, you've issued a challenge to men, haven't you? Just explain that. A lot of men approached me last week and said, look, what can I do? And there are lots of answers to that question. But first things first was some kind of public declaration that we will act differently, although we acknowledge the pain that Shana's very articulately put across. You know, the awe-inspiring, probably not the right words, but the words of women, particularly on social media, talking about experiences that they've never shared before. So absolutely, I'm with uh, Shana on this. I think, strange of what may sound, but a police officer contacted me on Friday and said to me, Nazir, this is our George Floyd moment. Women can't breathe because of us. What are we going to do differently? First things first was to put an open letter out there, which tries to articulate some of the thoughts that I had and others have had around the root causes of, of violence against women, male violence against women. And it does what it does. I think something like 250 people have signed it so far and it's still out there. So people, please, by all means, show your commitment. But it's just a, it's symbolic. It's no more than that. The real work has to happen inside and also within your communities and within your families and within, within your workplace or wherever else. At the same time, there's a bit of pessimism in me, thinking something terrible will happen tomorrow and we'll forget about this. Some child will die or something. You know, and we are very fickle as a nation, moving from 
crisis to crisis and, and not necessarily dealing with the one that we've already got. I regularly say, Adrian, this pandemic of male violence because women will outlive the pandemic we're going through. It's been in existence since the Garden of Eden. You know, if you believe in religion, you know, the idea of misogyny and, and women being inferior, you know, started thousands of years ago and will potentially continue for thousands of years unless we take advantage of what needs to be done now and, and, have, a, and have a real soul search. And that's not, that's not what's happening at national level. You know, the Prime Minister announced that there'll be more street lighting. Hooray! Victims can now see their perpetrator better. There'll be undercover officers in bars. Well, as Sean quite rightly pointed out, the most dangerous place for a woman is her own home. So what, you're going to put undercover officers in every bedroom? This is just tokenism, headline grabbing, when in fact the harder work requires greater investment, greater awareness raising, much more of a strategy here. You know, the, a piece of paper, oh, how many strategies have I read? How many strategies have you read? Filing cabinets are full of them. The reality is action takes leadership and engagement, and I'm not seeing any of that. Absolutely. I think we also need to look at what has gone wrong in the last 10 years. We're seeing a situation where rape prosecutions are at an all-time low, where women have a 1 in 70 chance of seeing their attacker prosecuted or convicted. These are devastating numbers, and they've happened as a result of cuts, as a result of policy changes. We've seen the kind of closures of the refuges across the country. We need to have more than a police officer turning up in a bar. And I think, like, even if you just think that free for a second, how do you know that the guy staring at you is a police officer or a creepy guy? Like, and we have these terrible, terrible scandals of undercover police officers and the spy cop scandal, the fact that police officers have used undercover status to harm women. There needs to be a huge amount of rebuilding of trust before you even get to the idea of like, well, we'll just put more cops staring at women in, in bars. Like, we need to get to the root causes of male violence against women. And that means we need to confront issues around misogyny, around power and around inequality. Because just turning on more streetlights, yes, that's comforting. It might make you feel safer in the moment. But again, it's reaction rather than proaction. It's not talk tackling causes. It's just sort of modifying symptoms. I'm sure if somebody says to the Prime Minister, we need more proactive policing. And they don't act differently. To make a difference, you've got to act differently. Their idea of proactive policing is visible policing, more police on the streets, blah, blah, blah. And so that's the reaction here. Well, actually, proactive policing is a better understanding of risk. You know, one of the reasons I left prosecuting six years ago now was that every prosecution is a failure because somebody's been harmed by the time it gets to the prosecutor. It's the preventative work that is more important, as important. Sean's absolutely right. What's happened to justice when it comes to every area of justice, but particularly violence against women and girls, has been shameful and travesty. You know, when I left in 2015, this is not a comment on my performance, the teams and the people around that time, we had the highest conviction rate of violence against women and girls in our history. It's not saying much, but it was in our history. And we have gone so far backwards to the point where you know, the figures speak for themselves. And you have people now saying openly that rape has been decriminalised because you've got a 99 out of 100% chance of not being convicted. And so what, does that, what kind of message does that send to potential perpetrators? Justice itself is in crisis. There's no point, for example, increasing the sentences for something if nobody's going to be arrested, charged, 
convicted. You know, that's the end game. If you're not doing the first stage as well, it's absolutely pointless. That's where the government goes. The government goes to ink better sentencing powers. And one of the things with numbers is that, you know, we talk often about the 21,000 police officers, fewer police officers, etc., etc. People forget that's half a million years of experience. You cannot replace that with 21,000 officers out of, out of police academy. It'll take years before they get to the, to the level of expertise that we've lost. And the other area, which undoubtedly um, Chad pointed to, was the NGOs working in this field. They have been starved of funding at a time when, here's the good news, more people did come forward to report their concerns. Some of the messaging, some of the good work we did has led to more people coming forward. But now we're damaging them because we're not able to process cases fast enough or at all. And the NGOs who provide the support for victims, the sexual violence advisors, the domestic abuse advisors, they have been starved to the point where they are, I'm a patron of nine of them, and they can't, they can't cope. And they've not been able to cope for a long, long time. And the very best they can do is identify the most at risk and provide them with counselling or therapeutic support. Whereas they can't do anything for the bulk of the people that would need the help and the government's response here is it's not joined up and it's not strategic enough one thing that strikes me about this sean is that masculinity as a whole has to be questioned by this that's something that nazir has raised in his letter the masculinity that we all as men buy into has something at the end of the continuum, which is very dark and very dangerous and very violent. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that has really concerned me over the last couple of years, and particularly with events more recently, is there was so much work done to encourage women to report. And that work was really valuable and it made a difference. We did see this increase of reports. And I don't want to get to a point where those that reporting drops off again. It's already not high enough. Most incidents of male violence against women don't go reported. There's that famous statistic that it takes 35 incidents of domestic abuse before a woman calls the police. This is still a problem, but we cannot risk continually going backwards. There's something like 233 rapes every day. What are we doing? How are we, as a society, allowing that to happen? How has that become acceptable? How has that become normal? The government has announced, I think, as part of this bill, 11 million to provide support for victims of sexual violence during the criminal justice proceedings. It's one of those classic cases where, yeah, 11 million sounds a lot until you realise there's 233 rapes every day. It goes back to what Nazir was saying about men need to think more about what they can do. And like Nazir, people have asked me, like, oh, what, can, what can we do? It's a bit like, well, you need to speak to each other. You need to speak to one another as men and question behaviours that you see in your groups of friends. And I saw this really great bit of stand-up from a male comedian who said, you know, I thought I was on the right side, but I did nothing. I thought that just by doing nothing, I was already the best guy at challenging violence. And it didn't work because his friend went ahead and raped someone. So I think men really need to sort of step up and speak to each other and have those kind of open conversations about their own ideas about sexism, their own ideas about violence against women. And, you know, women are there as well, like talk to us, but don't rely on women to 
to teach you what to do better or explain to you again and again how painful it is to have to bear our experiences over and over to try and change the conversation. Men need to start talking about their own experiences of misogyny and sexism. I mean, that, that's a really good point. And, you know, I can't begin to tell you the number of friends I've lost or deliberately lost because I challenged them on their, their jokes or their attitude. And we need to do much more of that. It's Sean's point about silence isn't complicity, but silence creates the landscape or permits the landscape to be created where men feel they can do what they do. And, you know, I was brought up, and I'm sure, Adrian, you're probably the same thing, masculinity, man up, man up, power, control. If ever I said something about women and girls, you know, in a positive way, oh, you're in touch with your feminine side now, are you? As if somehow that's not masculinity. Masculinity is much broader than military action, attacking, being violent, all that. But that sadly is the general discourse, isn't it? Uh, and the way education operates is, is to make you think men play rugby and women play netball. You know, it's, that's the point. We've got to change. We have to have a conversation about changing the whole narrative. Uh, and that is that is the more difficult thing, which is why government doesn't want to go there. You know, some of the work I've been doing, I'm, I'm in, one of the roles I have as advisor to the Welsh government. So from September, um, the Welsh government are now committed to mandatory relationship education in primary school, starting from the age of five, because hate is learned behaviour. And you learn it at home or in whatever environment you're in. And so what is the state doing to tackle that? And so we need to have those conversations about what's a good relationship, what's a bad relationship, abusive relationship, what's masculinity, what's gender equality, as early as possible before those views become entrenched in a child or a young person. But whenever I have that conversation in England, Adrian, the English government, oh no, I don't know if faith groups will, will accept that. I don't know if whoever will accept that. And so excuse after excuse about delivering something that we know works. Yeah, I've written a lot about the need for proper comprehensive relationships and sex education. And to kind of undo this myth that when we're talking about sex education in primary schools, we're not talking about the mechanics of sex. We're talking about respect. We're talking about, you know, sharing is caring. We're talking about breaking down which toys are gendered. All of those play a really important part. And then obviously, as you move through education, you can talk more openly about some of the more, shall we say, explicit issues. But if we don't have education from a really early age, we are missing a trick in changing attitudes of young men and women because the statistics of violence against women who are under 18 are already shocking enough. And we talk a lot about mental health of young women and everyone goes straight to blaming social media. I go straight to blaming endemic sexual violence. Like these are real issues that are impacting women, young women's lives and they we know, as Nazia says, that one of the solutions, one of the big solutions is education. So why aren't we doing it? Sean Norris, who investigates attacks on women's rights and plenty more besides for Byline Times. You can help fund her excellent writing and this podcast by taking out a subscription to our monthly paper, The Byline Times, which costs just £36 a year. More info at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Now, alongside Sean, you heard Nazir Afsal, former Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England, whose autobiography, The Prosecutor, is released in paperback next month. 
Now for a story about the abuse of women and girls that is both deeply unsettling and hugely inspirational at the same time. Some of the details you'll hear will upset some listeners. Lila Micklewaite discovered that one of the world's most popular pornography sites, Pornhub, contained videos featuring women who had been raped, trafficked or were underage. Shocking stuff. All the more so when you realise that Pornhub generates around $460 million a year in revenue and has more monthly visitors than Netflix. Lila took it upon herself to fight back on behalf of the victims and survivors featured on the site, so much so that bosses of Pornhub's parent company MindGeek, based in Montreal, were recently hauled before the Canadian Parliament to account for themselves. In the last few days, 70 MPs and Senators have published an open letter calling on the police to launch a criminal investigation. Lila has been telling me how she stumbled upon the scandal. I've been fighting sex trafficking for over a decade now, and I've focused, let's see, probably the last eight years on the intersection between the pornography industry and sex trafficking, child sexual exploitation, rape, assault, and all of these major you know, sex crimes that are going on on the world's largest and most popular porn site is what I discovered and kind of made known to the public in a kind of a big way over the last year. And when did you first realize there was a particular problem with Pornhub? Sure, it was a bit over a year ago when I started to really connect the dots. I mean, I had heard about several different cases of children who were being raped and assaulted on Pornhub for profit. For example, there was a 15-year-old girl from Florida who was uh, raped and abused in 58 videos. And she was a trafficking victim. And actually, she was missing for a year. And her mother was tipped off that her daughter was actually on Pornhub. And then she was able to connect with the police. The police were able to use surveillance footage to find the trafficker, recognizing his face from these videos. And there were several instances like that that were reported in the media. And what I discovered was I did a test upload to the site of test content. And I discovered what many, many people around the world would already know, that it only took an email address to upload content onto the world's largest porn site. No age verification, no consent verification. Uh, And that's why the site became infested with videos of real rape, trafficking, assault, and non-consensual content. And how do the people uploading this content make money from Pornhub? Well, some people who are uploading content can make money from Pornhub. The 15-year-old I just mentioned, she was part of a monetized program on Pornhub called Model Hub, uh, and her trafficker was you know, earning funds from those videos. Um, there's another victim who was part of a class, recent class action lawsuit against the company who was a 16-year-old, and she was, again, used in monetized videos where her trafficker was actually directly making money off the videos. But In most cases, the real trafficker, the mega trafficker, the one that's making the money off these videos is the company MindGeek who owns Pornhub. They're making hundreds of millions of dollars every year off of these videos. They're highly monetized, even though they're offered to the public for free. They're monetized with ads, with premium memberships, you know, monetizing user data of everybody who visits the site. And they have 42 billion visits to the site per year. That's before December. Their viewership and their consumership has plummeted in recent months because 
in December, they actually deleted 80% of the entire website, 10 million videos they had to remove because they couldn't verify that these were not rape victims or children who were being abused on the site. And they had to basically scrub the crime scene in, in recent months. So these instances that you talk about of child abuse, of sex with minors, of human trafficking, of non-consensual sexual activity, these were not just one-offs that somehow slipped through the net. Absolutely not. The site, like I said, is infested with these videos, and they're mostly teens. And so one of the problems of why this went on for over a decade, really hidden in plain sight, because the videos were all mixed together uh, with a genre called, you know, teen pornography that depicts children. So it depicts underage teens where girls in the videos are wearing knee socks and they're holding teddy bears and they have braces and they have pigtails and they look like underage teens. And many of them are actually studio produced and they're over 18, but many of them were actually underage teens. It would be one thing for a user to be watching this and see a toddler, which has been on the site. The Sunday Times actually did an investigation in 2019, and they found children as young as three on Pornhub. But most of the victims of underage content on the site are young teens. And from a user perspective, it's really, I think that it's a form of consumer fraud because these users are going onto the site imagining that this is, quote unquote, you know, fantasy or, you know, somehow legal material that they're watching because they trust the brand when the truth is that they have done no verification checks to ensure that these are not underage teens. And what we found was in many cases they are. And the victims are coming forward. There's multiple lawsuits now. I think there's five or six lawsuits currently uh, against the companies. Three of them are class action lawsuits on behalf of minors, of children, who have been raped and abused and exploited for profit on Pornhub. When you raised these concerns initially, how did Pornhub react? Well, at first they ignored it. They thought that this was just going to go away. And then they realized it wasn't going away. Because what happened was I I launched a petition in February of last year after I had written an op-ed exposing this issue. And people called on me to start a petition. And the petition instantly went viral. It got hundreds of thousands of views within the first week, two weeks. Now it has over 2 million views from 192 countries. We have 300 organizations who have endorsed this campaign. Some of those who have signed this petition, hundreds of those in the porn industry itself have signed this. Hundreds of survivors of sexual abuse have signed this petition and endorsed this campaign to shut down Pornhub and to hold its executives accountable. And when they found out that this was not going away, it was just gaining momentum day by day, the media started to cover it. We had hundreds of articles, even before the New York Times groundbreaking expose in December. And they responded by gaslighting activists, gaslighting victims, trying to defame me as an activist, trying to silence uh, me and others who are raising the truth about this injustice. And they did not respond as any responsible company would. Apologize to the victims. Admit that you have a problem. They denied, denied, denied. Even in October, they called child exploitation on the site conspiracy theories. 
And only a couple months later, they deleted 80% of their website because it was infested with child exploitation. So that was their response. And the New York Times article that you refer to was written by a highly respected journalist called Nicholas Kristof. And he identified search terms which quite quickly led people to scenes of minors, underage people having sex, sometimes non-consensual sex, or led people to seeing victims of torture and rape and other degradation. Sure. I mean, these are, listen, what I say is Pornhub is not a porn site. It's a crime scene. I say that often because it's true. Nicholas Kristoff is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and he's been reporting on the issue of sex trafficking for a long time. And he underwent a months-long investigation of the site. He spoke to, I think, dozens of victims. Many of them were quoted in his article who had been exploited on the site as minors, as children. And he he, like you said, he exposed the fact that Pornhub not only allows these search terms, had allowed search terms like crying teen, abused teen, exploited teen, very young, those kinds of things, 13-year-old, for example, on the site, but promotes terms to viewers who, through their algorithms, through the way that they've actually designed the site, they've designed it in such a way uh, that it's set up for exploitation and not only set up for exploitation, but the monetization of that exploitation. I think what's important for everyone to understand is that anytime a child, anytime anyone under the age of 18 is used in a commercial sex act, according to international law, according to domestic laws, they are a victim of sex trafficking. So every single minor that has been exploited on Pornhub is a victim of sex trafficking. And we have to treat it with such seriousness as this is a real sex trafficking crime scene. Pornhub, or its parent company, MindGeek, has offices all around the world, but its largest office is in Canada, in Montreal, where I think it has 1,200 employees, and that's led to an investigation now by the Canadian Parliament. Well, I'll explain to you kind of the trajectory of what's happened recently. So in December, there was that explosive piece by Nicholas Kristof that raised awareness globally. I mean, there was about over 4,000 follow-on articles around the world. Visa, MasterCard, and Discover all cut ties with Pornhub because they investigated the claims. They confirmed the claims that there was criminal content being monetized on the site They stopped allowing payments to be processed using their cards. Pornhub deleted 10 million videos, 80% of the website. And then because it's based in Canada, as you said, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, was forced to respond within 24 hours of Nicholas Kristof's piece being published. Uh, Members of parliament began speaking in parliament about Pornhub on a daily basis for a couple weeks after. And an investigation was launched into the company. They were subpoenaed, they were called to be questioned by Parliament, uh, by this Parliamentary Ethics Committee. For the first time, Pornhub executives were forced to face the public. So until this time, for the last decade, they had been hiding in the shadows. They used fake names, they used fake profiles in the media and on social media and those kinds of things. They were finally forced to testify, to be questioned as criminals, is how they were treated in this 
And what was discovered was that they have actually broke Canadian law with regard to child pornography and child sexual abuse material on multiple levels. One of the most obvious is that they actually had reported zero instances of child sexual abuse material that they knew about for the last decade, from 2008 all the way to late 2020 after the New York Times. Because in Canada, there is a law of mandatory reporting. So if you have good reason to suspect that a child has been abused, it is your legal obligation to report that. But there were instances where Pornhub was made aware that there were suspicions of sex with a minor. They may have, in some cases, taken that video down, but they failed in their duty to mandatory report. Absolutely. And in, in cases where it was confirmed that it was a child, you know, over the last 10 years, they've reported nothing. They've attempted to hide and conceal the crimes that were going on on their website in order to keep up an image, to keep up the money. 70 parliamentarians yesterday actually called on the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to launch a full criminal investigation into Pornhub and MindGeek. And that actually echoed a call by 525 NGOs from 65 countries and 104 survivors. So the pressure is on and it looks like what might happen in the near future is we will see an indictment. We will see a criminal prosecution of this company and executives. Lila Micklewhite, and you can find out more about her campaign at lilamicklewhite.com or her Twitter feed at Lila Micklewhite, which has a link to her petition to stop Pornhub. So what has been the company's response? Well, they told the Byline Times podcast that they have implemented a safety and security protocol that is far more stringent than not just adult content platforms, but all tech and social media platforms. And they say that any insinuation otherwise is untrue. In April 2020, they say they asked a leading US law firm to conduct an ongoing independent review to build a best-in-class content compliance program. And from the start of last month, they introduced what they call a series of industry-leading safety and security policies that will set the industry standard. They say these comprehensive measures for verification, moderation and detection will ensure Pornhub is the safest platform online and at the forefront of combating and eradicating illegal content. The safety and security policies have been adopted across all of the sites run by Pornhub's parent company, MindGeek. Now this week the Football Association produced its long-awaited independent report into non-recent child abuse in English football. It was conducted by Clive Sheldon QC and the issue of mandatory reporting of abuse, which we heard mentioned by Lila Micklewaite, was raised there too. But with a fancy sidestep Lionel Messi would have been proud of, Sheldon said that the whole issue of mandatory reporting was best left for another report, the independent investigation into child abuse. Now this week I released a film called The Celtic Boys Club Scandal about abuse at one club in Scottish football and many of the people I interviewed believed that mandatory reporting would have helped protect them or their loved ones. You can watch the film free on YouTube but here's a snippet, Michelle Gray talking about her brother Andrew who was abused in the 80s by one of his coaches at Celtic Boys Club, Jim Torbett, who is now in jail. It took Andrew 30 years to disclose his abuse, and as you'll hear, the psychological scars ran deep. Alongside Michelle, the other voice you'll hear is Andrew's mum, Helen. He struggled really with day-to-day -day life. Um, 
he couldn't really hold down a job properly. No. He'd have relationships, they'd break up. And he suffered terribly with his mental health. I mean, depression was... Oh, really bad. He obviously had his addiction problems with some drugs. Um, and he had a gambling addiction as well. And we'd do what we could to help him, and he'd be okay for so long. And then... And then uh-huh. he would have another mm-hmm. episode. And that was just the cycle. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many doors in this house no, were. Uh-huh. He'd punched holes and you know, he'd be out in the garden. My dad would be trying to calm him down. He'd lift his hands mm-hmm. to my dad. And then afterwards, he would be sobbing like so, a baby. That's it. You that's know, it. and he would be so apologetic. Mm-hmm. And he would say, I don't know where it came from. Mm. I'm really, really sorry. And, you know, when he told us what, you know, had happened, um, for me, it was just like a bit of the jigsaw. It, it oh, just definitely. started to make sense. It was so embarrassing about what people would think of him. You know, um, that he hadn't stopped it and he'd allowed it to happen. And we just kept telling him, you have got nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about, Andrew. You were a child. You were a 12-year-old child. And after Andrew disclosed his abuse, he tried to take his life three times? Three Three times, times. yeah, between Mm -hmm. December 2016 Mm -hmm. and July 2017. Mm -hmm. Um, that was, they were dark months. Mm-hmm. Michelle Gray and her mum Helen talking about abuse victim Andrew Gray. Now in that film, The Celtic Boys Club Scandal, you will hear calls, as I say, for the introduction of mandatory reporting, which places a legal obligation upon anyone with reasonable suspicion of abuse to report it to the police. It's an idea which is on the statute books in many parts of the world, but not the UK. And, as I said, when the FA published a report this week into non-recent abuse, they rather dodged the issue. Tom Perry is a survivor of child abuse and runs Mandate Now, which campaigns for mandatory reporting. What was his reaction to the Sheldon report for the FA? Well, I switched straight to the recommendations and in a concise response to that, I would say limp, period. If you look at the first five recommendations, they're all training. Training, 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 training for everybody, training from top, training to bottom. And if you have been in as many safeguarding and how do we make safeguarding better meetings, you will hear the following. Better training, better communications. The point is, though, is that training alone will not make someone who is disinclined to report abuse, report abuse. No amount of training will make them do that. So I'm afraid at the moment with safeguarding, we're all facing in different directions. And law puts puts us all in one facing in one direction. And believe it or not, if we then had mandatory reporting, and it was part of this training package that has been suggested, then these recommendations can start to look really quite sensible. But absent of MR, I'm afraid not. For people who don't understand then what MR, mandatory reporting, is, just briefly explain and tell us how it would work in situations of abuse at football clubs. First of all, MR is working in the majority of jurisdictions around the world, common law jurisdictions. So let's just state that right at the onset. We lag the rest of the world. What is it? If I am a coach in a football club and I I am responsible for the care of children in my charge, I am obligated by law 
to report known or suspected abuse on reasonable grounds. So if I do have a suspicion that a child is being abused either within the setting or most importantly outside the setting that comes to my attention, I am obligated by law to report. And in so doing, I am protected. I am given the protection of law because at the moment, if someone reports that abuse and does the most courageous thing of doing so, I know we all think it's right and that's what should happen, but it's, I'm afraid, should is not enforceable. That's the problem. Okay. And if you re make a report and that report is not then made out in law, you are open to be sued for defamation. So good luck. I mean, I really cannot understand regulated activities that say, oh, no, 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 we don't want it. Why not? It gives you protection. And that's the point. It works well. It's very effective. And actually, strangely, although the government doesn't think so, because, I don't know, it's looking at the wrong end. It's looking at the paper and the documents all upside down, I think. Actually, it's good for government as well, because actually you get a better quality referral because the referrals are coming from trained people, not just members of the public. The Sheldon Review said that it wasn't really within its remit to discuss mandatory reporting because it would be applicable not just to football but across society as a whole and it deferred to the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse instead. There's nothing stopping Sheldon expressing an opinion. My God, he's done enough of it in the rest of the report, but he can't do it on this subject. It's bewildering. Why do you think he went so shy at that point? I do wonder. I'm sorry. I'm deeply cynical. He can say, look, I've looked at the evidence. This would seem a good way to go. But of course, we have to await the outcome of the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. He could have done that. Instead of that, he's just fence-sat. And that's very disappointing indeed, and actually wimpish. I don't know why he's done that. So yes, he's now deferred to ICSA. It's inconceivable that ICSA will not recommend the introduction of MR. My goodness me, they can't lean against the door of not letting the evidence in any longer because the evidence has knocked the door down and, you know, they're, they're swimming around in it everywhere. So if they now say, well, no, 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 we don't want mandatory reporting, because guess what? Better training and better communication will win the day. Well, that would just be utter folly and it would fail everybody. When mandatory reporting was introduced in Australia in the mid-1980s, it had a significant impact on the reporting of abuse. Just unpack what you've discovered. In Australia, in New South Wales, in 1987, it was extended to teaching. And what happened was there was some data from pre and post the introduction of MR. More than double the number of children, literally overnight, Literally overnight, more than double the number of children were referred. The substantiation percentage remained within one percentage point. Okay, so substantially within tolerance of what you would expect. So this assertion of government, this wild assertion of government that cannot be stood up, let me tell you, in any with any data, that, oh, this will all be false allegations and it'll stop children who are deserving from being, you know, attended to by social services. This is a, a matter of imagination. It's a fairy story. What happens is it protects more than double the number of children, and it does so in very quick order. It also prompts early intervention, early reporting. 
What you then find is, is that that early intervention stops a child being abused. Therefore, you cannot substantiate abuse that hasn't been perpetrated, but where the child is at risk. The irony is, is that those children that are referred under mandatory reporting, this is what has been found in New South Wales and other jurisdictions. What happens is, is that those children who are referred are placed into safety that much quicker. The children that aren't substantiated children, they tend to receive more services from social services and ancillary services to do with their mental health welfare than children who are referred for sexual abuse. So there is a benefit all round. And actually what this does is, and this is where the short-termism of government comes in, what happens is, is that those children are treated young and looked after young, protected young, and the problems that can occur later in life as a result of long-term abuse, non-recent abuse, are avoided, which has an enormous cost saving on healthcare. In the case of New South Wales, you say that the substantiation rate did not significantly change. So the number of cases that had actually happened relative to the number of reports stayed pretty constant. But the actual number of cases of abuse did rise. Substantially. So in other words, what you have is you have an increase in the in the, in the numbers, you know, so from one to three, because it was almost a tripling. OK, the substantiation remained the same at, you know, 70, 71, I think, percent it was something like that. Substantiations. Therefore, you're placing many more children into safety and stopping that abuse. Government here, you say this to government here, you provide the numbers and the government sort of says no, not on not on the grounds of evidence, because the evidence shows that that MR works. So what they're doing is they're doing it on the grounds of dogma, for want of a better description. And as a result, they're leaving children who could otherwise be protected to an unknown fate. Let's not forget there's mandatory reporting for money laundering, but there isn't for child abuse. You know, I mean, hello, none of it makes sense. It's quite illogical. There is an irrational fear at government without any question. Tom Perry from Mandate Now. I'm Adrian Goldberg and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times. You get more details at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.